welcome to this week's episode of How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano and I'm a partner in G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or on Medium at MikeTrap.com. Each week we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. All right, my guest this week is venture capitalist and G20 member Jeff McCarthy. Jeff's a partner at Northbridge Venture Partners, focused mainly on materials. He played leadership roles at two early successful companies within the Northbridge portfolio, Cadia Networks and New Oak Communications, where he was the CEO until that company was acquired by Nortel. Before joining New Oak, Jeff was a vice president of sales and business development at Cadia Networks, a developer of ATM concentrator products for the service provider marketplace, and held senior management positions at Wellfleet Communications, including VP of Carrier and Channel Operations. Jeff is a proud and active graduate of Northeastern University School of Management, magna cum laude, and serves as an advisor to the university today. In this week's second segment, Jeff and I will focus on a problem that seems like a great one until you have it which is how to pick the right VC partner when you have more than one to choose from. Jeff will share thoughts on the importance of chemistry and vertical expertise, respond to my question about what's different for female entrepreneurs, and compare funds specialized in individual stages of the venture journey with those that invest throughout it. I really enjoyed my conversation with Jeff. It's great to get a perspective on VCs from someone who's been one for a very long time. And uh, I think the entrepreneurs out there who are either about to or in the process of raising money will really benefit from what he has to share. As always, How Hard Going to Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast Enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Going to Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now is my conversation with Charter G20 member, Jeff McCarthy. All right, with me today is Jeff McCarthy. Jeff, thanks for uh, doing this for me today. My pleasure, Mike. Happy to do it. Appreciate you coming in. It's a beautiful spring day here in Boston. Maybe a little nippy, but... So uh, let's start at the beginning. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts. I've lived my entire life in Massachusetts. Specifically, I grew up in Concord, Massachusetts. Went to high school there. Uh, Then I went to college at Northeastern in Boston. Did you uh, have any siblings growing up? I did. I am one of six. Six? One of six. Wow. Where are you in the birth order? Number two, which I think is the best position, but why, number two. Why is number two the best? I think it, I get to see how my brother, my older brother, messed up and then use that to help my little brothers who would do everything for me when I told them well, to. Well, I like that. So you have, you have some of the authority, but little of the expectation. Exactly. A good yeah. spot to be. Yeah. Good for you. And uh, what did your parents do when you were growing up? Well, my mom, six of us, stayed at home and sure. took care of us which was uh, more than a full-time job. (laughs) Uh, uh, She had originally been a nurse and returned to nursing once all the kids grew up. So uh, that was her life, but mostly raising a family. Right. My dad uh, worked at Raytheon virtually his entire career. So he grew up in an era when people would stay at one company for their entire career, and he did. Hmm. And so he was an engineer by background, a project manager, and wound up, you know, running large programs for Raytheon. 
uh, mostly selling missiles to other countries who bought the missiles from Raytheon through our government. That's how they sold them. And did you aspire to um, an engineering lifestyle as a young person growing up? Was that I did of? not. No, what I did, did not. Did? No, I was, uh, although I, I, you know, I was okay in math, uh, probably good in math, um, but uh, I aspired more towards the business end of things. And so my degree at Northeastern was in, in business administration. Yeah. And then I later got an MBA. So I was kind of a business guy from the get-go. You have a good experience at Northeastern? I had a great one. And looking back, it was uh, one of the best things, I, one of the best decisions I made. I spent quite a bit of time now, uh, you know, later on, helping them as they roll out an entrepreneurship program. And uh, I'm actively involved in that and enjoying it quite, quite, a, uh, quite a lot. Hmm. It's funny. I've come to appreciate the... Um, uh, the brilliance of it. You know, I, I'm a liberal arts guy. And, um, you know, last thing I would want to have done was soil my collegiate experience with the concerns of, you know, commerce and real life. Um, but, uh, you know, I find hiring uh, interns, we actually have a, a Northeastern co-op as part of the G20 team, uh, who's just great. And um, what an incredible experience for him. And it's been great for us. I really, uh, it's, it's a fantastic model. It is, and the the co-op program, I agree with you. is uh, It's it's rarely duplicated because it's so hard to duplicate. Northeastern over the last fifty years or so, maybe even more, developed relationships with so many corporations, not just in the United States any longer, now around the globe, uh, where they uh, hire the Northeastern co-op students and. Those co-op students, I, I talk to many of the hiring managers at these companies, in, and now even in startups, and they think they are just the best workers they could get. Yeah. And as a result of that entire experience, I believe the numbers are 80% of the graduates at Northeastern are offered jobs in their field of study. Yeah. So when you graduate, you get a job offer in exactly what you were hoping to get a job offer in. And that's not the norm coming out of school. Right. Right. It's, it's what the world needs more of. You know, there is no shortage of jobs. People talk about the, uh, you know, automation and how it's affecting things. In fact, there's just a shortage of people who are a good fit for the jobs that exist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a, it was a prescient model and hopefully one that thrives in the coming age. Yeah. It's not going away. Did you work between undergrad and business school? I did. What did you do? I did. I started off, I worked in the computer industry uh, for the first 20 years of my career. And I, I basically worked at three companies. Uh, first was Honeywell for just a small period of time, a couple of years. Uh, and then I worked at a company called Computer Vision. And Computer Vision was one of the very first and early leaders in what was then a nascent CAD market. And so they created their own CAD software ran it on proprietary hardware, which was the thing to do back then, uh, and exploded. We're a very fast-growing company. I, I think during my tenure, we, we went from 30, 40, 50 million in revenues up to four, or 500 million in, in revenues. Hmm. So significant growth in an emerging market. Uh, and then I left and, and went to work for a workstation company called MassComp, Massachusetts Computer Corporation. Mascom, very clever marketing name, as you would appreciate. Yeah, didn't, didn't bring the marketing guy in until a little later, uh, <laughs> I would one, say one so. would assume. I would say so. <clears throat> and then 
when the computer industry started to mature, so where are we in time here? We're in the mid-late 80s at this point. And uh, a lot of the computer industry was in the Massachusetts area. Back then, you can remember digital equipment, yeah. Prime, Concurrent, Wang, Apollo. All of them. Yeah. Apollo had just kind of sort of started then. Um, but it was the industry was maturing, and MassCom wound up merging with a company called Concurrent Computer. And it dawned on me that if Massachusetts Computer Corporation was merging with a New Jersey company, uh, maybe it was time to leave the computer industry. And so I moved into the networking end of the business, and I joined this little startup called Wellfleet Communications. And that was a very good experience. When I started, about 30, maybe 35 people and no revenues. And when I left... Uh, after merging with Synoptics, we were 5,500 people and 1.8 billion in revenues. So after that set of experiences, were you like, well, oh, geez, this is this is pretty pretty straightforward. You know, it's uh, easy to go out and build a high growth. Uh, I mean, what 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 did you uh, help help us understand? Kind of what was your mindset coming off of that set of experiences? Well, uh, at that point, I, you're right. Yeah, things had gone well, or I had chosen wisely, yeah. or I was lucky, yeah. or some combination of all of that. And right. I think it is a combination of all that in, all, in, in reality. And I decided uh, to stay in that entrepreneurial startup world. Uh, and so Computer Vision was a smallish company, but a lot larger. Wellfleet was very small when I started. And then I joined two other uh, networking startups. And both of those uh, wound up being successful. Hmm. One of those I wound up being the CEO of. And, and you're right. It's, uh, when I, w- I was at a time when you had more hits. The batting average of these companies being successful was a bit higher than it is today, a little more difficult today, I believe. Uh, and, and so I, I enjoyed that. I, I mean, I think it's true that... Uh, that I was fairly lucky, but I think also that when the luck bus goes by, uh, you know, one of the tricks is to know when to get on that bus, and also one of the tricks is to know when to get off that bus, and I think I was reasonably good at that. Yeah. But so my experiences were a lot of early stage to raw startup companies, uh, and, you know, taking them to whatever level of maturity uh, was required, either a large company as in Wellfleet or... Uh, or a startup that got acquired fairly early in its life. Hmm. And that was part of all that. <clears throat> let's let's um, zoom into that a little bit. I mean, w- one of the common elements of your experience, both as an operator, as an investor, is is you seem to have an ability to pick spaces, um, the getting on the bus and getting off the bus. Yeah. You know, how, how do you know when, um, you know, the workstation markets run its co- course and it's time to go to networking? How do you know... What are the things that you look for, again, as an operator or an investor, to indicate where a given space is in its natural life cycle? That is the $64,000 question. The, um, the good investors uh, either have a sense for that or they know the people who do. And as an investor... I think it's fair to say that what good investors need to do is they need to know the mindset of an entrepreneur. Those entrepreneurs that can see around corners, 
that can see when the workstation market might be peaking, that can see when networking is about to explode. Uh, not everybody can see that, and that's what makes the good entrepreneurs great entrepreneurs. It's this combination of being able to see around the corners, matching technology and market, and being able to see when those two things might come together, what that world looks like in 18 months, in 24 months, maybe even in 36 months if it's a really large project that you're putting together. And and that's the trick. If, yeah. it, you know, not all the investors are good at seeing around those corners, but the good investors know people who are. But the, that's, I, I think you really put your finger on it there, is that the reason that it's hard is the scope of understanding required to do it well. So it's, it's not like you can look at a generation of technology and understand the limits and feel like it's run its course, and you can do that in isolation. Nor can you look out at a market and understand, you know, maybe a shift in demand or some change in the way customers buy. You need to be able to connect the dots between both of those things to find a pattern that uh, predicts the future. And that's, that's, hard. that's a big footprint for, for a single person. It is. That's why being a great entrepreneur is difficult. And it's why there are so few truly great entrepreneurs. And, you know, we have a handful of them in our local area. And G20's had the privilege of working with a guy named Danny Ori. He's, he would be in that class. He's a great entrepreneur. Yeah. At Wellfleet, I had the privilege of working with Paul Severino, uh, who was in that class. He, was, he could both understand the technology at a depth that most couldn't and apply that to a market that was either there or just barely emerging and see how that whole thing could come together. It's a rare talent. Yeah. It really is a rare talent. Yeah, I, I agree. I would, I would humbly add Ash Ashutosh to that list, too, yeah. uh, of local people who seem to have that, that uh, you know, breadth of understanding. Um, so leading New Oak, did you, you were involved at the very start of that, or uh, what's the New Oak I was Oak not story? the founder. No, no, New Oak was a VPN solution. Yeah. So it was founded November of 96, and I joined in the spring of 97. Yeah. So... I was not a founder, but I was pretty early. But you were like, were you kind of, like, they're bringing in the grown-up kind of uh, role, or? I, I think I was, I was the experience. Yeah. I, I don't think I was a grown-up. I think the, the, the founding team was, was pretty mature. And, yeah. Uh, and, but I, I was uh, experienced uh, and had come off a, a pretty nice track record of getting things from small to exit or getting things from small to big. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think that was desirable by both the founding team and by the investor group. Right. Do you have a um, particular predisposition to that part of the risk curve? There's this sort of bifurcation between the sort of before product market fit when you're kind of feeling around, iterating fast, everything's written in pencil. And then when you're scaling an organization, are you naturally inclined to the latter of those? And, and, and if so, why? Uh, I would say no. Um, while uh, more of my operating experience was in revenue ramp and then scale mode. Yeah. I don't know that I would say I was inclined to... I enjoyed all those parts. Now, being uh, uh, not the idea guy, not being the founder type, that's not me, uh, but being able to see things pretty clearly once that whole concept was put in front of me, 
uh, I enjoyed that early stage too, figuring out what's the distribution, figuring out what the product feature set might require. Yeah. Uh, talking to customers, getting direct feedback, bringing that back to the engineering team. Enjoyed all of that. Uh, but I also didn't shy at all away from now it's revenue time. Now you got to make numbers. Now let's scale this business at the appropriate pace to match the market, to match the capital, or to match what you're capable of. What do most people, most entrepreneurs in particular, get wrong? in that transition? Most of the time, it's timing. So I I think it's fair to say that good entrepreneurs, when they see a new technology coming together and they can put it together with a market, they know that this is going to come together at some point and they have a very good handle on the shape. But, But usually when they're wrong, if they're wrong, it's about when it happens. So... You know, so an example back, uh, you know, sort of in the early 2000s when optical networking was all the rage, there was no question that higher performance, higher throughput, higher bandwidth was going to be required. And, you know, just everything going on the Internet required additional bandwidth. But when did... T1 speeds have to grow to T3 speeds? When did T3 have to go to OC3? When did OC3 have to go to OC? And et cetera, et cetera. At what point did those networks saturate? Did they really require? Did the cost-benefit trade-off work correctly? Those are really difficult calls. Right. And I think so. I think if they get things wrong, it's usually the timing more than anything else. Right. And if you're early, you're going to burn a lot of capital and you're not going to own... Yeah, and uh-huh. the, the other problem is if you're early is you burn a lot of capital, you'll build something with technology that isn't the real answer. Right. Somebody else will then build it on the real technology. You've now spent too much capital, and you have a product that's inferior in the marketplace. Right. You've created a market for someone else. Right. And they tip their hat and say, thank you very much, and you're left holding the bag. What's the, the expression is uh, the, the pioneers get shot and the settlers get land. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell us about the decision to move over to the, to the investing side and how you came to that and how you thought about whether to do it. Well, I, so I had, uh, we had sold uh, New Oak to Nortel, and it became their Contivity Switch. It actually became a very successful product inside the Nortel portfolio. Anyway, that was New Oak. And then at that point, I was faced with this decision that should I do another one? It, the market was frothy. Uh, you know, we were in the period of uh, late 80, late 98. Um, internet was still being built out. Uh, and I had a, a track record that I, I think I could join a company pretty easily or start something with somebody else if, if I wanted. Uh, but I had been approached by a couple of venture capital firms who were looking to add capacity, uh, which is a euphemism for hiring people. Sure. And, uh, and I thought long and hard about it because I w- at that point, I was an operator, period. Uh, however, I decided I would take the plunge, uh, join the dark side as I was accused, and then uh, wound up joining Northbridge uh, at the very tail end, December of, uh, of 98. And here we are in 2017, and I've been there ever since. Why did you make the change? Uh, 
I mean, a little bit of it was I felt I could make a difference with the startup companies. And I genuinely believe that. I, I had enough experience uh, to be very credible with the founding teams um, in at what point to scale, how to bring on people, help recruiting, go to market, all the things that I think good VCs can help startup companies with. I felt I had that in my experience base, and so I could actually use that and make a difference. Uh, and then further, I wanted, if I could, to join a firm that was uh, located in Boston. I was a Boston guy. My contact base, my Rolodex, uh, was in Boston. And so I didn't want to join a firm that was trying to reach into Boston with a, you know, they were starting either on the West Coast or in New York or, or some other part of the country. Right. Um, and so Northbridge was a perfect fit. In addition, I had known the founders of Northbridge uh, because they had backed several of my companies. So there was a relationship that was uh, in hand. And so I thought, hey, if it doesn't work out, I can always be an operator. Right. Here we are. Nice fallback. <laughs> when you look back at your expectations coming in as a recovering CEO, you know, with a couple of wins under your belt, Moving over to the dark side, as you put it, mm -hmm. your words, not mine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you had a set of expectations about the job and uh, what it would be. And um, as you reflect back on, on you know, a good half your career spent in this world, um, more or less, so yeah. pretty, pretty no close. half, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, w what have you learned? What what were you wrong about? What what were you right about? What 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 are the what's the handful of things that were the biggest surprise to you? Coming in, moving over to the other side? I would say for the first couple, at least, maybe more, three years, given that I wasn't, and I'm air quoting here, the idea guy, Yeah. every meeting I had with an entrepreneur, I was with somebody who was the idea guy. And so many ideas sounded great to me. They are compelling individuals. They're very bright, sort of by nature. You expect them to be. Um, and so I would hear ideas over and over again, and the meeting would end. I'd reflect on the meeting. Boy, that, that could be interesting. That could be interesting. And it took quite a while for me to be able to listen for the real important stuff very quickly. Uh, What's log you know, is it logical that this market will adopt the, uh, or develop the way that this entrepreneur was thinking it would? And because at first you're just listening to understand what they're saying and how this thing might all fit because it's right. new technology typically. And so you try to put all that together and you're not thinking about the obvious stuff. Well, there's not going to be any smells going over the Internet. So the fact that this technology right. can smell things on the Internet, what are you talking about? Right, right. And so you get lost in the technology sometimes and forget about the real, the real stuff. And it takes a little time to pick that, that up. That's, that's number one that I, I learned early on. And the other thing is, it really is all about the people. Uh, everyone says that. Uh, I have found it is that. It really is all about the people. And that's the most important thing is to get to understand these people. Uh, and, I, and I believe that's a... That's a 
multi-directional, both a bi-directional thing. It's, it's important for the entrepreneur to get to know uh, who they're talking to, and it's very important for the investor to get to know who they're talking to. And so those are the two things. It really, really is about the people, and not all ideas are good ones. Yeah, even the ones that sound good. Even the ones that sound good. Yeah. Later on, when, the, uh, when energy markets started to uh, develop, and it was an area of investing, I, I had found an entrepreneur who had an idea to build a next-generation battery. Uh, and originally, it was going to be for wireless devices. And it was funny. I remember when we did the company, it was, we, we had come to the conclusion that wouldn't it be a shame now that we have wireless technology everywhere, Wi-Fi at, at the time was just really rolling out in a major way. And now that we have Wi-Fi, and you didn't have to plug an RJ45 connector into the wall to get your internet connection, you could actually have Wi-Fi that you still had to plug that phone into the wall right. or your computer into the wall because the battery didn't last too long. It lasted a half an hour. And so this was going to be next-generation battery for mobile devices, whether they were laptops or so forth. Um, they wound up going after other markets because of the way the technology evolved. Uh, and that was A123 Systems. And they became very big, went public, and, and then wound up going after the automobile market, which emerged and is emerging, but it emerged much, much slower than was anticipated. And so back to the timing of the market. Hmm. Uh, and so it wound up being sold to a Korean company, I mean, a Chinese company. In a new space, right? So networking, having been a place where you had built successful businesses, you're obviously a you know, vertical expert in that area. But you, you, know, you had no innate uh, understanding of the battery space to draw on as an investor. Help us understand how, how you develop enough understanding of a market to be willing to write a big check to a company trying to build a business in it? Well, uh, at, at the risk of being maybe a little flip, the dirty little secret in our business is, by and large, we fund the ideas that come into our office. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that if an entrepreneur comes in, and it's an entrepreneur you like, you could imagine yourself being in business with this individual, uh, the, they are then going to lay out their idea. And, and so that's what happened in the case of the battery business. Yes, it absolutely was a, a market segment I didn't really know or a technology. Now, did I get smart on it before we made the investment? Of course. Sure. My partners would have hammered me if I, if I just said, no, I, I think this could, could possibly be big. Let's invest. I like these guys. <laughs> Let's invest. Yeah. No, we did our work. We did a lot of work. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's when that idea comes into the room with those people. And if it, you know, so that's when I did, that's when I did the work in that case. Uh, it, it usually is that the area that you have the most experience, and as you say, in my case, it was networking. I knew more people from that industry just because I had been part of that industry for so long. Sure. That more of the people that came in the office were coming in with ideas to develop that industry. So more often than not, it was more networking things because that's where my whole experience base was. But every once in a while, uh, things would come in from outside by credible entrepreneurs, and then it's just a matter of, okay, 
am I comfortable that I can do the work and really understand this at the level I need to? And I think as hopefully anybody listening here knows, that in the tech business, things are very different on all these different technologies, but the business issues are very similar. Business model is critical. How do you go to market? Do you do it with partnerships? Do you hire people, channel partners, et cetera? How do you market that? How do you acquire customers? How do you make, maintain a technological lead against your competition? Those issues are kind of the same no matter what it is. And so if you can get through the comfort on a new technology, which isn't too, too tough, then the other stuff where I can add some value is a lot the same. All right, so Jeff, you know, one of the things that makes you unique is you've spent about half your career on the operating side and about half, uh, you know, on the investing side. And um, I'd like to get your um, advice for uh, the former, uh, having intimate knowledge of the latter. Um, Specifically, um, how should an entrepreneur uh, who is in a fortunate position of being able to select from among capital providers how does an entrepreneur make the right decision about who to go into business with on the VC side? Yes, I think that's a great question, and I think it's one that all entrepreneurs should spend time thinking about in advance of the capital raise. Uh, so first thing I would think about as an entrepreneur is, first of all, does the firm, assuming you're talking with a firm versus an individual, but does the firm invest in the market that I am uh, going to be developing a product for. So do they do software? Is software something they're comfortable with? Do they do hardware, communications, servers? Uh, Do they do energy? Do they do medical? Do they do medical devices? Whatever it is that you're doing, does this firm do that? Because to the extent that they do, you're probably better off. Uh, And even if it isn't understanding the technology at the right level, it's understanding the names in the marketplace, uh, understanding the timescales. It may take a lot longer to get a certain uh, vertical product out, so a medical device, just because of government regulation, might take longer than a software product that Hmm. sits on your mobile. It it sounds like that... um expertise in the vertical will tend to align their expectations with the reality. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so if you can select an investor who brings that experience or an investor group that brings that experience, I think that's, that's a net positive. Um, you also are likely going to spend quite a bit of time with this firm or this more like individual who's on the other side of the table. So, I think the, the, the data shows that the time to liquidity, and that is from the first funding to the liquidity, whether that's a, a merger acquisition or an initial public offering. Uh, there are other ways. Obviously, you can be acquired by a private equity firm or, or some other thing. Uh, but that period of time, from the time you get your first money to the time you exit, uh, used to be in the early 90s, Five years was sort of the norm. Uh, That five 
has gone to six, has gone to seven, and it's more like between seven, eight even years. So the typical tech company is eight years. And why is that important? Well, it's important you need to raise more money over time, you need to stay afloat, et cetera, et cetera. But more important, you're likely to be partnered with that investor for that entire period. Right. It's a long time. Right. The average so, marriage is seven years, right? Well, I don't, so, so, so. mine's longer, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes, dear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's a long time. You're going to have a relationship. There's going to be ups and downs. Things right. are not going to go the way they're supposed to go. There's going to be disagreements. Uh, product development is not going to make all of its milestones. Revenue projections are not going to be met. Hiring decisions are going to be flawed. There's going to be crap. And you better feel comfortable that you're going to be able to work through those things when the crap happens with the individual on the other side of the table because that's the reality. It, it's going to take longer than you think. There's going to be more ups and downs than you think. And so feeling like you can work through those with somebody on the other side, I believe, is, if not the most important, one of the very top most important items that an entrepreneur should do when he's, he or she selects their investing partner. How do I test for that? Is it just a function of personal chemistry? Um, are, are, there, are there ways to avoid a bad decision? Um, because, you know, again, you're, you're excited. You're, you're, you know, you want to go build this business. Now you've got someone who's going to write you a check. Like, uh, we went to uh, Smith and Walensky, and, uh, yeah, you know, he seemed like kind of a dick when he did that thing. But, I mean, this is, on, on, the, on the entrepreneur side of the table, this is kind of what you go through. Yeah. How, how do you avoid making a bad decision there when you so want to move forward? Well, this, uh, I would say this is 80% instinct and, and, and 20% work. And the 80% instinct is that chemistry. Uh, I, I think... You know, how do you pick your friends? You kind of have a sense this is somebody I kind of like, and things then evolve a little bit. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is a little bit or a, a lot in, in that chemistry and do I feel this could work and so forth. And, and entrepreneurs have a gut. They know. I think investors have a gut. They know. Yeah. Uh, 20% is diligence. So you do the work. You, uh, most often the investing... Uh, an investor on the other side has made other investments. That, that means there are other entrepreneurs that have been backed. You can ask them when things went bad, how'd it go. So there's diligence. And, and that'll either reinforce or scare you uh, that your instinct was wrong if it was wrong. Um, the other thing I'd say, so that's, that's the split. I think it's like 80-20. You're going to know inside of your gut or you're going to think you know. And then you're going to do some work to back that up or not back that up. The other thing I would tell you is that there's a process. In getting funded, there's the first set of meetings, getting comfortable with the idea. There's then, you know, opening it up to other members of the partnership. There's then the pitch, all of that. And that, that can take as little as a month and as long as, say, six months, depending on the firm or the idea or whatever. And I always tell the peop the entrepreneurs that the the process, that month or six months, that process is your diligence. You're going to know a lot at the end. And so we'll hit the pause button for a second because, like I said at the beginning, the most important thing is to get funded. Right. What we're talking about is when you have choices, 
Sure. When you're that rare, maybe, or when you're that entrepreneur where everybody wants to give you money, um, then the process, I think, can help you. You can see if this is somebody who there's going to be things even in term sheet negotiation or in whatever. And that resolution of those issues will teach you a lot about what the relationship might be longer term. Right. So there's an instinct. There's real diligence. Make phone calls. Ask other guys, et cetera. And then there's that process. And the, th- the sum of all that, I think, gives you the indication that this is somebody I can be in business with. There are, there's a lot of um, female entrepreneurs in our audience. And um, this idea of chemistry and personal interaction and relating to someone, it's, it's different for them. This dynamic where you have, you know, let's say a white male entrepreneur and a white male investor, there's a natural, uh, you know, simpatico that sort of comes from that. Any thoughts or insights for a female entrepreneur any unique challenges they might have or an approach that might be effective for them in picking the right partner? Well, first of all, I would say, I mean, I obviously not walked in their shoes. So it, it is different, and I'm only guessing. Yeah. But my guess is that it's similar. And the, 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 the major difference for female entrepreneurs, I think, is that there are so few female venture capitalists. There are some, and more and more. Uh, but it hasn't been... Uh, an industry that is populated by a lot of female um, VCs. And so they're likely going to run into male VCs just because there's more of them. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are, but I guess it's at least 80-20. could be 90-10. I mean, I really don't know. Yeah. Um, and so the odds are very long that they're going to run into male uh, much more often than they would run into a female one. So they're not going to have so there maybe their gut feel is going to be a little maybe a little more guarded, uh, maybe a little bit harder to read or maybe whatever it is it's going to be I think a little more difficult but the process I don't think is different. I think an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur, and I think they're going to have in their gut that this is somebody I can work with or not. Uh, I think they can do diligence just like anyone else. They can call a a former uh, entrepreneur who was invested in by this individual and ask. How did it go when things were bad? How did it go when things were good? Um, were they, did they add value in any particular case? They, they can do their work, and there'll be a process, and they can feel their way through that, just like any other entrepreneur. Yeah. What else do entrepreneurs need to keep in mind when selecting uh, the right investment partner? I would say another thing that should be considered by the entrepreneur is... Does the fund of the investor have the makeup that I need? What, is it, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, uh, do they have enough capital resources so that when I need to come back for a follow-on round, they have enough capital to participate so that that next round can get done? It doesn't mean that they, most venture capital firms can't fund the entire first round, nor can they invest uh, do the entire second or third round. But typically, they've got to invest at some level to maintain um, the, the momentum in the investing cycle. So you want to make sure that there's a willingness to invest and not just drop money in and leave so that the makeup of the firm from an individual standpoint is important. The makeup of, a, of the firm from the capital structure is equally important. They should check out to see what the investing philosophy is. When you make an investment, 
that first dollar, do you protect for an, one more additional dollar? Do you protect for two more additional dollars? And you want to think that in relationship with how much capital you might think you need to build your company. Uh, and do these venture capital firms typically allow for outside investors to come in and lead a second round? Or do they feel they need to lead the second round? And those sorts of things. And you want to get your arms around that whole capital structure and investing philosophy. Uh, again, assuming you have options, I would ask those questions as well. You know, one of the things that's a ch changed that seems to me over the last maybe decade as venture has evolved is you do see more, you know, kind of single stage funds, right? There are, there are seed guys now. There are, you know, just early stage folks, and they're not going to do that follow on versus the kind of firms that you're talking about. And, and what, the, what the seed only guys will say is that, uh, well, you know, if you, if you take seed money from a company that does follow on, they essentially have huge control over your company, right? Because their decision to proceed or not signals to the outside world whether this is an investable proposition. Um, and, and of course, the folks that, that are with the entrepreneur right through would say, well, you know, you want someone who's going to be, you know, with you all the way. Uh, rather than someone who's going to be, you know, optimized for a single round and then move on. You know, how should an entrepreneur think about that question if I'm choosing between a, a kind of seed specialist versus uh, a, a more a firm with a, a broader model? Well, first of all, I believe that all the investors along, let's call it the investing food chain, so the early, early stage, we'll call them seed guys, uh, or, or angels, even smaller maybe, uh, up to the VCs, up to the follow-on mezzanine guys, all the way up, uh, all have an important role. And entrepreneurs, depending on the, the, the way their company is starting off, um, should avail themselves to all of those options. And so, for example, if the entrepreneur can get a great deal of technical accomplishment and by technical accomplishment, I just don't, I don't mean necessarily just developing the product. But yes, that's obviously going to be important. But customer interest, market uh, traction, uh, if you can develop that where you have a viable um, proof point to be able to show the next stage, say, venture capital investor, then A, you have a better shot of getting the investment. And obviously, that's what we're looking for here. So you have a better shot. It increases your odds of getting a yes. Uh, and second, you have a better shot of getting a better price. You, there's less risk. So for a VC who looks at a product that's already developed, then sort of by definition, the, uh, the technical risk is, if not greatly reduced, dramatic, you know, it's, it's certainly in, in a much better shape. So you have a lot less technical risk. If you have customers even one, but if you have customers, then the market risk, while never totally eliminated, is lesser. When the risk is lesser, the value is higher. So if you can get accomplished a lot on a small amount of dollars, then you should avail yourself to the angels and to the seeds and get that done on relatively cheap money and then raise an appropriate round from a venture capitalist at hopefully better prices. And so all of those spots along are, are, I think, very important and play a role, depending on 
the company that's being funded. Right. But you, you got to take into it. There's no absolute right answer. It really comes down to the nature of the business you're trying to build and the capital requirements of that business, you know, not only in the next round, but all the way to the finish line, right? Which is when Correct. you get paid. Correct. That's good. That's right. I think, um, you know, in this environment today, you can do so much on so few dollars, but with open source uh, software available, uh, with white box hardware available, sure. uh, there's, there's quite a bit more that you can do. You don't have to regenerate as much, and you can really concentrate on your value-add piece of the piece of the pie. If, on the other hand, it's just a big project and takes a lot of money, then you probably want to raise a larger round earlier so that you can actually get something done so that when you go to the market for your second round, you're in a position of having some track, some success behind you. Some really good advice there, I think, from Jeff McCarthy. Um, the most important of which is just that this is a big deal, that um, in the frenzy to raise the money to go realize your idea, it's easy to forget that uh, you're really signing up uh, for a marriage. You know, picking a VC partner is like picking a spouse. And uh, it's important to do the homework to make sure you're picking the right one. All right, as always, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks for sticking around. I'll see you next week.